Hi everyone, my name is Torin Jensen. I'm the program and content coordinator here at Lighthouse, and I'm hanging out here under the LitFest tent with a couple of our LitFest 2019 fellows who are going to read a selection of their work. First up, we're going to hear from Ryan Lanham, who was a special mention of our Veterans Writing Award. Ryan? Thanks, Torin. Today I'll be reading a hermit crab essay, and for those who are unfamiliar with this form, it's the little hermit crabs will appropriate some object for their shell, and what I've done here is taken the actual nine-step clearing procedure for the M4 weapon and split it apart and kind of push back on it a little bit. So here we go. Clearing procedures for the M4 series weapon. Warning. To be considered safe before disassembly, cleaning, inspecting, transporting, or storing, the weapon must be cleared. 1. Point the muzzle in a designated safe direction. Attempt to place selector lever on safe. If weapon is not cocked, lever cannot be placed on safe. Downrange is a designated safe direction. Downrange is weapons toward targets, toward plastic green human effigies called Ivans, a leftover from another war, a war with a worthy enemy one in which no shots were fired because that's not how bullies operate. We want to win, to conquer, to oppress, not to square up toe-to-toe -to -toe and test our mettle. Still, the Ivans allow us to hone our skills in killing. Badges are awarded by prowess, marksman, sharpshooter, expert rifleman. Downrange is also our destination in theater, the stage upon which we'll perform our acts of war, a charade of liberation, our faces painted up with righteousness. Downrange will be Afghanistan for me. When I'm shaving in the side-view mirror of my truck, dipping the razor into a cup of cold water, when mortars begin to fall out of the clear blue sky exploding all around us, I won't know which direction is safe. I won't know which direction is trying to kill me either. It will seem as though God himself is raining down death and destruction. I'll finish shaving, grab my M4, and with a safe direction in absentia, I will point my muzzle at every turban-wearing man I see that day. In my head, I will know each is Ivan. Two. Remove the magazine by depressing the magazine catch button and pulling the magazine down. Depress is army speak for push, for pushing a button. When the magazine is in, we pull, pull triggers. When a man tries to kill me by shooting a grenade at my head, I turn my weapon at him and pull the trigger. It pushes a button. Adrenaline is released. It feels a bit like skydiving. Fear is transmuted into aggression. I pull the trigger again and again. It's even fun. Another button is pushed. Neurotransmitters light up the part of my brain a therapist will later call the pleasure circuit. She'll have a diagram of the mesolimbic system and use her index finger to trace the path of dopamine and serotonin. She'll explain how the drugs and alcohol I use to erase scenes of bombs and body parts flood the synaptic regions with more neurotransmitters than can be absorbed, dendrites, awash in chemical bliss. She'll talk about the neurologic buttons I've pushed and why after repeated pushing, it's natural to feel depressed. 3. To lock bolt open, pull charging handle rearward. Press, bo press bottom of bolt catch and allow bolt to move forward until it engages bolt catch. Return charging handle to full forward position. If you have not done so before, place the selector lever on safe. Lock and load. That's what my 10-year-old nephew says when he pulls back the charging handle on his pellet gun. We set up a squirrel target in his backyard and take turns shooting down range. I remind him to put the weapon on safe. He looks at me with clear blue eyes and smiles. I love you, Uncle. I choke up and wonder how much he remembers. Can he still see the pain on my face? 
He was three when I tried to jump off my fourth floor balcony, a year out of the army and ready to throw it all away. He watched his dad grab my legs as I went over the railing, only three, but surely he could sense the immense wrong of the situation. His dad was furious with me for not thinking about the kids. How could I be so goddamn selfish? His pure blue eyes betrayed none of the past. I wonder if I'll be able to sit him down one day and apologize for being so blinded by my own pain that I didn't think about him or his dad or our family. 4. Visually, not physically, inspect the receiver and chamber to ensure these areas contain no ammo. Negligent discharge, or ND, is what the Army calls it when my squad member accidentally launches a grenade into an Afghan village as we're returning to base. ND is punishable by the Uniform Code of Military Justice. My squad member is demoted, most of his pay taken, and he's reassigned to a desk job for the remainder of deployment. ND is one of the most shameful mistakes in the military. Careers are destroyed by one misfire, the mark of Cain. After my team member's ND, we spend the next 10 hours scouring the village and surrounding areas for signs of damage. It's mid-January and we've only been in theater for a month. Snow is up to our knees. Our interpreter rubs his hands together as we knock on giant metal doors that open into massive fort-like compounds made of mud and shit. In time, we'll learn these compounds are called kalats. We'll also learn that teams of Taliban traveling by motorcycle will commandeer kalats for an evening, waiting till nightfall to attack passing American convoys. They'll shoot guns and rocket-propelled grenades from the rooftops and windows as the inhabitants cower in a corner. We'll fight fire with fire, unload hundreds of rounds of ammunition while the attackers slip out under the cover of darkness and escape into the night. Then we'll spend hours at the scene creating an after-action review, assessing collateral damage to the clot and its inhabitants, and determining how much money we owe in condolence payments. One night, a backup unit will respond to our request for help during an ambush. Under a moonless sky, amidst the chaos of gunfire, one of their gunners will reach down into her truck and grab an AT-4, a single-shot rocket launcher designed to bring down tanks or heavy fortification. There's an elaborate 11-step process to arm the weapon, making it nearly impossible to ND, and on this night, our platoon leader has a military-grade green laser pointer aimed at the clot that hides our attackers. Roger, eyes on target, says the gunner. AK bullets whiz through the air. Pink tracer rounds carve bright neon arcs in the black sky. The gunner looks down to start the multi-step arming process. Bullets ping off the armor surrounding her turret. When she looks up, smoke from grenades have enveloped the green laser. Fire, the platoon sergeant screams. The gunner waits, hoping the smoke will clear and her target will become visible again. Fire, goddammit. She raises the weapon and fires. The backblast from the AT-4 lights up the night like flames from a hot rod tailpipe. A building ahead explodes. Shooting from both sides dies down, and through the clearing smoke, the green laser is once again visible. It's pointing to a standing building, fully erect. Beside it, the crumpled remains of a different collot. Wrong goddamn building. In the distance, we hear motorcycles speeding into the night. A panicked, turban-clad man emerges from the shadows and screams. His wife and infant daughter are buried beneath the rubble. We'll return in a week with $5,000 in a briefcase. Our condolences. 5. With the selector lever pointing towards safe, allow the bolt to go forward by pressing the upper portion of the bolt catch. Towards safe. Approaching safe. When we're on base, it feels safe, almost like baseball. It's when we're nearing base that we're not quite safe. It's when we're moving toward base that we're attacked. If it wasn't so dark, I'd be able to see our base, walls made of wired mesh and sand designed to withstand mortar rounds and small arms fire. If it wasn't so dark, I might be able to see our attackers tucked into a tree line at our 3 o'clock position. 
I might be able to see into their eyes and wonder if they feel safe, resting comfortable in the knowledge that Allah will reward their sacrifice tonight. That's not to say they're not afraid. That's what heroin is for. One of them will get away when we start to shoot back, but one will not. His right leg will be decimated by a Hellfire missile, courtesy of a Blackhawk helicopter that comes from base to support us during the ambush, and three 240 bullets in his back. I'm the 240 gunner. My bullets are in his back. He was running away, running towards safe. He doesn't die right away. We're transporting a desk jockey non-commissioned officer tonight. It's his second deployment and he's never seen combat, never experienced danger or the thrill of the fight, never had someone actively try to end his life. He's in my truck. He's cowering in the dark beneath me while my 240 machine gun rips into the night, a steady staccato flash of orange muzzle fire lighting up the turret above his head. When the firefight stops, he joins a team of dismounts to recover the bodies, or tonight, body. Our assailant is nearly buried in debris from the missile blasts. He moans in the dark, hanging on to consciousness. Rodriguez, our team leader, finds him first and raises the barrel of his M4 to the man's head. It would be a mercy killing, but the desk jockey calls out for him to stop. It violates our rules of engagement. We have to render aid. He tightens a tourniquet around the man's thigh and asks for help carrying him back to the truck. I'm in the turret under a full Afghan moon when they slide him beneath me, beneath the metal grating upon which I'm standing. His face is below my feet, shrouded in blackness. If I kneel down, would I be able to hear the slow, belabored breath? Would I be able to hear him uttering his final prayers? Would my team members eye me suspiciously if I pulled the tiny Koran from his pocket and place it upon his chest? And would it be okay to ask forgiveness right there, gently lowering my ear to his mouth, listening for any sound that I could later remember as absolution for this horrible deed? If I'm paying attention when he finally passes, would I hear the slow death rattle, the sound of his soul shaking free from his expired body? Would I catch a glimpse of his spirit floating into the night sky, traveling over field and mountain to his family's home? And would his children stop playing, somehow aware of their father's presence, his wife holding their baby, beginning to weep? But none of this crosses my mind. Instead, I stand in the turret, feeling the waning effects of adrenaline in my body, my gun pointed into the darkness as our bullet-pocked trucks creep slowly toward safety. 6. Place the selector lever on semi and squeeze the trigger. I keep my gun aimed at the hole. The sun is hot and making me tired. I watch a rainbow in the oil water that floats by. Daddy says the rain washes off the roads and drains into this ditch, a little creek that runs behind our house. A boy down the street says he's seen a fish with three eyes and turtles with six legs. I wonder what monster lives in this hole. When it pokes its head out, I pull the trigger. A bright red spot appears between its eyes. It looks dazed. I load another pellet and give ten quick pumps before it can slither away. I pull the trigger again. This one rips open the side of its head. Its pink meat looks shiny in the sun. Blood rises up and drips onto the concrete like red splatter paint. Ten more pumps. Pool. Pink. Then red. After a few minutes, it stops moving. I grab it like a rope and pull. A trail of red smears behind me. My friend is down the ditch, waiting at another hole. I got him, I say, and throw the creature at his feet. It doesn't occur to me that a snake could be female. I just know that Sunday school sermons tell us that the serpent tricked Eve, and Eve tempted Adam, and Adam, first man on earth that he was, was not used to being tricked by snakes in a garden full of trees. Some with fruit he can eat, and some with fruit he has to remember not to touch. 
But it's hard without a dad to tell you right and wrong. Only a God in the sky who is ready to punish you for being wicked and not obeying his rules. So he throws you and Eve into the wilderness naked. And even your kids will be wicked, one killing the other and the serpent free to slither back to his home in hell where he laughs at the folly of man. So on summer mornings I go snake hunting. I may be twelve, but I already know some creatures are worth killing. 7. Pull the charging handle fully rearward and release it, allowing the bolt to return to the full forward position. Release it. Let go. Set it aloft like a Chinese lantern. Watch it float upward, a tiny speck of orange against the black sky. Notice the pang of fear in your belly, like the first time a balloon slipped from your grasp as a child, the red dot reaching toward the sun, growing smaller and smaller, and you know the sun is hot and you can't watch too long or you'll go blind, and when you're blind, the whole world is black like a night that never ends. That's when she comes, in your sleep. It's always the same. You open the door to your childhood home. There's a blanket of snow on the ground. On the street, Daddy is opening the door to his red pickup truck. He waves for you to join him. There's bile in your throat. You'll be too slow. Always are. The white stretch is unbroken in all directions. Your boots grow heavy as you run for the truck. Come on, Daddy waves. Almost there. But it's too late. You feel her breath on your neck. The sickly smell of rotten meat. You turn in time to see bright green eyes under a black hood as her fangs sink into your flesh. The paramedics arrive with a team of cops and firefighters, and in a moment they're through my front door. The tiny apartment is flooded with bustling uniforms. Their calm precision reminds me of the military. I'm strapped to a gurney and taken by ambulance to the hospital, then by wheelchair to the psych ward. Two weeks later, alone again in my prison home, I drink an entire bottle of Roach Killer. This time, when I feel the urge to call friends and family and apologize for leaving them like this, I throw my phone over the balcony and cut deep lines into my arms to release the pain. No paramedics tonight. To improve my odds, I make a noose out of guitar cable and hang it from a doorknob. I tie it around my neck and let go. My head swings inches above the floor. Blood from my arms smears the white carpet. Again, I wait for the black hooded one to take me away. 8. Place the selector lever on safe. During my freshman year of college, I turn on the TV, and every channel is covering a breaking news story about two teenage boys with bombs and assault rifles killing 12 classmates and one teacher at a high school in Colorado. I watch with rapt attention, unaware that from this moment forward, a new generation of American children will no longer feel safe. Years later, when I'm downrange and three days from returning home, our squad comes across the aftermath of a truck bomb that kills 24 people, 16 children, Taliban killing their own another generation of Afghan children that have never known safe. 9. Close the ejection port cover. Close the cover, final chapter, end of book. Place it upon the shelf with all its scenes of war and death and conquest. Leave it there for a while. Let it gather dust. The family may ask about it at Thanksgiving as ladles of brown gravy are being poured over steaming mounds of mashed potatoes and sliced turkey meat. Tell them you left it at home. They can look at it next year. But soon everyone will forget. It'll be your book, your secret. Life will resume its merry float downstream. A sister will wed and have a child. Her husband will work two jobs to pay for their expensive new addition to this world. A beautiful baby girl with swirling galaxies in her big brown eyes. She's too little to see the book. Maybe she'll always be too little. But maybe she'll grow up and marry another boy who joins a machine he doesn't understand to escape a monochrome existence. Maybe he'll wake up at 4 a.m. for the first four months chanting kill, kill, kill 
in unison with other boys that are learning to harness their hate. Maybe he'll like the fit of his uniform and grow accustomed to the grinding of cogs, jostling for position within the machine. Maybe another economically valuable land will need liberating, and new uniforms will be issued with new camouflage patterns, an antiquated idea that harkens back to a time of intimate warfare, face-to-face, man-to-man, toe-to-toe. Maybe he'll take a job in the machine in an air-conditioned booth in Arizona, where he'll sit at a computer using a joystick to fly little unseen planes high above foreign lands, occasionally pressing the red button and watching a pink mist replace human figures on the screen. Maybe he sips a latte waiting for the smoke on the TV to clear, thinking about his racquetball match at five. Or maybe he longs for adventure and joins a unit that takes him to the front lines where the size of enemy explosions grows in proportion to our technology. Maybe he's a little too close to the action one day and returns home in a wheelchair, his buddy in a body bag. Maybe he'll spend the next few years at the bottom of a bottle wondering why he came home and his buddy didn't. Maybe he'll eventually find a way to bring closure to that chapter on his time in the machine. Or maybe he'll flip to the end and see that it doesn't change, that the story never gets better. And as a man of action, maybe he'll take it upon himself to close the book once and for all. The weapon is now clear and considered safe for disassembly, cleaning, inspecting, transporting, or storing. Thanks. Okay, now we're going to hear from Veterans Writing Award winner Nathaniel Blazing. Nathaniel? Hello, everyone. Um, My name is Nathaniel. First of all, I need to thank Prevent and Prevail for the grant which made my fellowship possible. And thank you to Andrea Dupre for encouraging me to apply. I'll be reading two short essays tonight. First is Afterward. All I knew of my future was I had no memory of a time when I'd loved being a helicopter pilot and was out in New Orleans as my place of self-rediscovery. I didn't know where to go when we'd run out of people to rescue. Returning to the city had been my only hope to keep me going in Iraq, and now it was underwater. For the moment, however, there seemed to be no end of patients needing evacuation from Lindy Box Medical Center or to the droves of people crawling out of the residential floodland of post-Katrina New Orleans. But after pushing myself for days, I was exhausted. Bright sunlight cast green and heated by our plexiglass skylight flickered through the rotor system in a cloud of nausea while my seat shuddered in 4-4 time. It rocked me forward every third or fourth beat, then lulled me back. I was losing control when my eyes drooped, regardless of how hard I focused. I nodded off. Only for a second, though. The voice of my fellow pilot Wiley yanked me back, our turn to land, and I began a slow vertical descent to a small patch of grass exposed that we shared two at a time with seven or eight other helicopters. My flight suit was drenched with sweat and my fingers tingled from a locked up shoulder. I rotated my arm back in the socket to get the feeling back, but the crew chiefs were doing worse, near heat stroke. I can't remember their names, but as soon as our wheels sank into the mud, I needed to get out to give them a break. A new group of wheelchair patients were being pushed through the shallows from the hospital. But two blocks away, an orderly frantically waved his arms, jumping to get our attention from beside a hospital gurney. I closed the door on my side of the helicopter and rushed to the other side. I grabbed the arm of the second crew chief while shouting that I was going off to help with the gurney. Blood rushed into my legs and face as I ran. It felt so good I wanted to keep going. Past the bed, past the orderly and his patient, to be a child again and dive into the protected waters of a pool or lake rather than splash through the oil slicks of sunken cars and human waste. But the hospital bed had gone as far as it could. Its wheels already stuck in the muck when I saw what was on it. Bundled tightly in a sheet on the mattress 
was a mass that resembled a man, with a head and long torso, but nothing else. The sulfurous reek of rotting flesh and broken gas lines from the city around me was nothing compared to the sight of this man on the bed. With no arms or legs to wave for help or protect himself in any way, I paused to take this in and squinted bloodshot eyes against the blare, the glare of bare sunlight reflected from him. Swaddled tightly in his unstained bleach white sheet, he was more vulnerable, yet more clean and pure than anything I can remember seeing in my life. I wanted to ask whether the man in the sheet had been born this way, or if the amputations of his limbs were the result of a horrible accident, a landmine, an IUD, an infection from the flood. But I was too stunned to do anything except grab the opposite sides of the sheet and lift, while the orderly yelled, ready? The bundle was heavy, and when I leaned in for a better grip, the man's head raised to face mine. With a shallow voice, against all the chaos and helicopter noise, he mouthed, Help me. After all that he was, or had become, where did he get his will to survive when I had lost mine? I struggled under the burden of him, leaning almost 45 degrees from vertical to raise him from the mattress. I struggled not to slip or drop him as we cleared the tall edge of the bed. I struggled not to look toward the man's body when he shouted, Where are you taking me? What's going to happen to me? Over and over. Minutes passed with him shouting for answers I didn't have until we placed him on the floor of the helicopter. The orderly then sprinted back to the hospital. I stared after him for a moment while mindlessly helping a few other people climb from their wheelchairs into our helicopter until no one else could be squeezed, crammed, or stacked into the back. And taking one last look at the man inside wrapped tightly in his sheet, I slid the cargo door shut and returned to the cockpit. Wiley already running the engines up to full RPM as I strapped in. I retook the flight controls while Wiley made the radio calls for takeoff en route to the grass of the Cloverleaf Highway Interchange between Causeway Boulevard and Interstate 10. This was a couple minutes closer to the flood than the main airport, and with the Causeway Bridge now open, it could handle the landing and unloading of eight or nine aircraft at a time. It was almost no waiting while dozens of buses and ambulances stood by to whisk people out of the city. As soon as we touched down, one of the crew chiefs, I want to say his name was Mike, helped me lift the limbless man. We struggled to carry this load through the overgrown grass to the shoulder of the interstate. I prayed the sheet bearing him wouldn't rip from my grip until we set him carefully in the weeds next to the rumble strips. Mike then ran to the closest ambulance, over an eighth of a mile away. I avoided looking down at the body by my feet, swallowed in its white sheet. I avoided raising my black tinted visor so he couldn't see my eyes and hoped I could keep him out of my head. But I knew he was already there, a part of the Greek chorus of my thoughts pronouncing my own fears. Tears streaked my grimy face behind my helmet visor as I stared at Mike running back, an ambulance passing him by, then slowly as it neared its passenger door already ajar, I avoided looking down until it was almost over. The man was horrified and angry and screamed one more time with my chorus, what's going to happen to me? And now for something completely different. <laughs> because I have Helen, Helen McDonald as my workshop leader this week, 
here is a piece that the two editors who published it couldn't agree about whether it was fiction or nonfiction. I'll let you decide. Building a nest. With mud to keep out the breeze, we made a home far from sounds or predators. I chose the tree where you now sit, wove the space where you would first breathe, and the place where you could reach, where you could branch out. How can I teach you the things I've learned without knowing a language you'll understand? What will be the substance of your first thought? To whom will you speak when you know the words? Where will they lead you next? When will you be strong enough to spread your wings and will you survive the fall to adolescence? Will you parent as I have or will you need what I've tried so hard to teach you about our world? When your egg began to hatch, and you emerged all fluff, no feathers, everything happened so suddenly. Even though you were, you were expected, I didn't know how to be a father. And I don't know if you've learned the things that I needed to impart, but now that you've learned to hunt and fish through many migrations of rebuilding our nests, I know it is time. For all I have taught you about the path I'd hoped to lead you on, you will make your own. And then perhaps I will realize it was me who was meant to learn all these years. You may not feel ready, but it's in your nature. You've known inside what to do all along.